your Bibles. And uh, if you were here last week, you would have uh, remembered that uh, we ended our five-week series on the five slogans or the five solas of the Reformation. This week it is, uh, some pastors would call it a standalone sermon. Uh, it's kind of on its own. But it's deeply connected to uh, the past five weeks. And it's, the title of the sermon is Affirming Our Commitments. Affirming Our Commitments. In light of uh, this beautiful thing that God is orchestrating through salvation, we want to affirm our commitments to God and to one another. And so uh, this morning we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Oh, we're going to start in verse 12 and go through verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you have read and acknowledged. And I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes and yes and no and no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to court. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. Let me just finish this off. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, there is no who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have, been, should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of my heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Our particular focus this morning is going to be on verses, verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you 
for your joy, for you stand for them in your joy. <coughs> when one studies the Old Testament, it becomes very evident, very apparent, very quickly, that whenever God's people experienced a, a reformation, a, a renewal of their love and appreciation for what God has done amongst them, there were at least three things that happened in, in their midst as they affirmed their covenant to God with one another and uh, as well as to one another. Without exception, there were three strands to this covenantal commitment. First of all, there was a renewed commitment to holiness. A renewed commitment to holiness. And there was a renewed commitment as well to help one another in fulfilling this covenant. And it's witness as they stood together to make this, yes, we will do this. And it was often kind of this antiphonal kind of thing going back and forth. They stood together saying, we together will do this. And there was also a renewal of happiness as a joyful celebration. And it always accompanied these affirmations. Basically, it was a covenantal commitment to holiness, to helpfulness, and to happiness. You know, see how that works? You get your three ages for the day, you get your outline, you're ready to go. Well, this is what I desire for Missio Day Church as well. That we be a church that is all about our, our desire for holiness, as well as our helpfulness with one another towards fulfilling our covenant uh, promises to God and to one another. And also, in that process, Happiness and joy from the Lord. So we're going to break this down into three sections. And first we're going to start, start talking about our commitment to happiness. Our commitment to happiness. The Bible is a, a very thick book. Um, it, it's a book with a lot of words. And if you start at the very beginning, it's going to feel like a very overbearing and uh, kind of a, a demanding parent kind of mentality. You shall do this, you shall not do that. A lot of rules, a lot of regulations. And therefore, a lot of people in our culture and society have looked at Christianity or just the Bible as this terrible killjoy kind of religion. You are really regulated about what you can do and how you feel and how you interact with people. It is an absolute killjoy. It, it's boring, or it might. some people might even describe it as puritanical, much like a Puritan, just no emotion, no, no feeling, no nothing going on. But I would submit that on, on the basis of what the Bible actually teaches, what it actually teaches, what it says about itself, and what it says about you and I who have been redeemed in Christ, Christianity is, in fact, the happiest, most joy-filled religion in the world. And it is supposed to be. And if that doesn't make you hope huh, about your own faith right now, maybe you should keep on listening and even more intently. Your faith, the Christian faith, is to be joy-filled. It is to be a happy religion. In fact, the message of Scripture is that indeed you can be happy. You can be happy. Even more than that, God desires for you to be happy, to be filled with joy. And therefore, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have all the reasons and resources. Yeah. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God does want us to be happy. He is the blessed or the happy God who desires to make us happy. And there, this is precisely what Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 3. He said, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. He didn't just bless us in the heavenly places to be these holy, boring people. He blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Blessing. God wants us to have the type of life to be fulfilled and to be joyful. Scripture even speaks about having abundant life. Abundant life. Abundant in joy. I'm not sure you believe it. Abundant in joy. Our happiness in life depends supremely on grace-inspired and joyful obedience to Christ. And in this obedience is experienced, is, and this obedience is experienced within a covenantal community of brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, as we individually grow in our happiness and our joy in Christ, in, in what He has done for us, we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. According to Scripture, so ultimately God is glorified. As we grow happy in those facts, we will consequentially, corporately, grow happy as well. We should become a happier, more joy-filled covenant community, we should be all about committing to work together to be happy. And for believers, our pursuit of happiness is not like that of the world. Hear me. That is, our definition of happiness is radically different in that we use the word blessed to describe this pursuit. We describe desire to experience God's blessings on our lives, his gift of well-being, and we desire this for others as well. And that includes the person sitting next to you and around you. An example of this is Paul's words to the Corinthians as recorded in 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. The King James, Ver King James Version states it this way. Not that we have dominion over your faith, not that we're lording and being these overlords of your faith, but we are helpers <coughs> of your joy. We are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. So the person next to you and around you, those that you do your Christian life with, are to be your helpers of your joy. And you are to be their helpers of their joy. Paul experienced some difficulties with this church. And he had to write some very hard words. If you know the context of this, Paul, Paul really struggled whether or not to go back to, to Corinth. You, you read, we read earlier about he was vacillating, whether or not to stop on his trip back and forth, whether I should stop there, because I've got some really hard words to say with you. And maybe you've experienced that with a brother and sister in Christ. You go, man, I, I know that on my way to Orland or on my way through, I, should, I need to stop and talk to them about this. Because what I have is hard. I, I've got some really hard words, but what do you want to do? Do you want to stop by and just dump it? No. One, because we're wimps. We're scared to even say difficult, hard words. But maybe it's because as we are sharing these difficult, hard words, it should be because we are concerned about their true joy, their happiness in Christ. And you want to help them reorient towards Christ as opposed to reorienting towards the things of the world. So Paul 
in this, this issue of, do I go? Do I stay? Should I, should I go around? How do I, what do I do with this? So Paul, in dealing with this, these difficult words, decided that he was going to write letters because he was concerned for their joy, and he knew that if he would have come in person, he could have brought great pain. So he tried to deal with it via letters. But he didn't want them to get the wrong impression. He didn't want them to feel like he was being overbearing or, or controlling. In fact, he wanted to be very stern with them. If you read these words of Scripture, he was very stern with them. But it would have been motivated by his concern that they experience joy in Christ. He wanted to be the helper of their joy. He knew that they were standing firm in the Lord by faith. And that ultimately they didn't have to answer to him. But he loved them. He loved this church that he planted. And he was committed to their joy. The pursuit of their true happiness. You see, the believers in Corinth had experienced the, the rags of sin. The brokenness and the depravity of sin. But, they also experienced the unfathomable riches of salvation in the gospel of God. They knew who they once were. But they experienced the gospel and they were now these people. And Paul was now concerned that they continue in their Christ-centered pursuit of being blessed, of being happy, of being joy-filled in Christ. And so it must be for us as well as a local church. We must be committed to the corporate pursuit of happiness and not be concerned with leaving one person Leads me to the second thing. There was a commitment to helpfulness. We need to be the kind of people who rejoice at one another's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. In a very real sense, we are committing to pursue the happiness of other people in whatever season of life they may find themselves in, and in whatever providences from God they are experiencing. We want to be committed to one another in whatever season of life you might be in. The scriptures point to this attitude when they command us, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're commanded to rejoice. Rejoice with them when they're rejoicing and Weep with them when they are weeping. We also see in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. And we're further told that when one member suffers, that we all suffer together, simply by the virtue of the fact that we are all members of the body, the body of Christ, and therefore we are deeply connected. And I'm not sure if you look around this room this morning, if you believe that you are deeply connected to these people that are in this room. But we are. So let's take some time to kind of flesh what that means to be, to be committed to helpfulness. We need to be, first of all, first of all, we, we are to help one another to stay happy in God in times of happiness. We need to help one another stay happy in God in times of happiness. Joy is a state of mind in which we can say, all is well. Because 
all is well with my soul. But more than that, it is a state of mind that says, all is well because I am satisfied with Jesus. Why? Why can we say that? Well, because he's a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the ruler over all and the head of all principalities and powers. He is the head of over all things that are in the church. He, we, we can also believe this because He has delivered us from the wrath that is to come. He is a sinless, spotless Lamb of God who has paid the ransom for our sins. He forever lives and intercedes for you and me. And since we know Him, we know that God is for us. Therefore, we can be satisfied in Christ. And we have all that we need. And therefore, our pursuit of happiness is not tied to the pursuit of a particular career, a bigger bankroll, uh, more meaningful relationships, or to better health, or to any other thing. Instead, our pursuit of happiness is tied to pursuing joy in Christ, to the pursuit of seeing and savoring and serving Christ wherever we might go. But let's be transparent, totally honest here. This is not often our pursuit, is it? Sometimes good things, very good things, become our pursuit. Marriage, children, friendship, jobs, God blessing you financially, Oftentimes we are tempted to find our joy in, in the blessings rather than the one who blesses us. And therefore, we need the help of others who have a God-centered mentality to help us rejoice in God who gives us all these blessings. We need to be reminded that it is the Lord who has blessed us with a child or this marriage, or this job promotion, or good doctor's report, or a good report card from school, or the growth of the church, or has blessed us with a special anointing maybe on a Sunday morning, or a thousand other things. It is God who has blessed us with these amazing gifts. Consider the flip side, though. It's quite possible when a member, a brother or sister in Christ, is blessed and has good reason for happiness and joy, that a spirit of jealousy can overtake those of us who are spectators to their happiness. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody amongst us has, has a great promotion, a, a great marriage, a great this, a great that, and we on the outside go, I don't have that. And suddenly we get really jealous. So I'll go, I'm going to raise some specific and sensitive family issues. This is not personal. This is pastoral. In a church like ours, this type of commitment will often be put to the test. I think the situation of a wife, in which a wife is given the blessing of conception and another is not, 
It is very understandable that a woman who considers herself to be barren may feel sad upon hearing the news that her friend is, is now pregnant and is giving birth. And we've got to be absolutely sensitive to this. Our hearts, we weep with those who weep. But we also rejoice with those who rejoice. It is a wonderful opportunity for both women to pursue their happiness in Christ. As she comes alongside and rejoices with her pregnant friend, she is being selfless and in this sense, a biblical exercise, she will find in herself increasingly casting her care more and more and more on Christ. And in a profound way, she will be able to find more more satisfaction in Christ. I'm not suggesting that her pain will subside or that it will abate in any way, but what I'm saying is by this biblical response of her taking up her cross and following Christ, she will become fruitful in her relationship with Him. If, however, she chooses to behave jealously, the net result will be cutting off relationships. And therefore, not only will she not be able to be helping others pursue happiness, more than likely she will stop pursuing happiness herself. And the same can be applied to the situation regarding those who are providentially blessed with marriage. And those whom God chooses to withhold the blessing of marriage. Brothers and sisters said, jealousy is never good thing. Never. Period. It's always destructive. And rejoicing is the antidote. Rejoicing is the antidote to this. In this scenario, a single person celebrates the wedding of their, their fellow church member that, and they are committing themselves to both pursuing happiness of their newly married friend as well as their own happiness in Christ. And of course, the key to all of this all of this is love. If we love one another, then we will rejoice when others experience the smile of God's promise. And we will seek to come alongside one another in rejoicing with them and reminding them of God's goodness. You're pointing and saying, that is beautiful. I know that you've been longing for a child, and I haven't. God hasn't blessed me with that opportunity, but I want to rejoice with you. And in doing this, I want to point you to God's favor and God's goodness and how he is blessing you. Remember, remember this pregnancy, this marriage, this job promotion, this, 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 that, this child, whatever it is that we're talking about, this is a gift from God. And never, never do we want people to create a, an idol of marriage an idol of pregnancy, an, an idol of work, an idol of perfect children. We are protecting our brothers and sisters from creating any idols, for idols are no help in our pursuit of happiness. But it's not just helping each other in their happiness. We are also to help people, secondly, stay happy in God in times of heartache. The Word of God calls us to 
bear with one another's burdens. And therefore, we are affirming as fellow members and brothers and sisters in Christ to do so with tenderness and sympathy. And this is vital if we, if we are going to help one another in their pursuit of happiness in God. God is a wisdom. In His wisdom has so ordered our lives that we experience both joy and sorrow, <coughs> birth and death, sickness and health, poverty and wealth, success and failure. It's more than a wedding vow. This is life. Both sides of the emotional pendulum are under God's loving and purposeful control. Both are opportunities for us to pursue true happiness. But we need help in this. Deep help, especially in the area of our burdens and our sorrows. And this is where the commitment of the body is vital to our corporate pursuit of happiness. It's easy when you are a lone island to get distracted, isn't it? And go, man, my life just sucks right now. And all of a sudden you go down this, this valley of jealousy and pain and bitterness and resentfulness towards other people and what they have and what God has blessed them with. Why don't I have this? And you just, I had another miscarriage. I've, I've had this job loss. I've had, I'm getting angry. I'm getting bitter. We need the body of Christ to help us reorient each other to finding our joy in God. We need to take seriously our Christ centered responsibility to come alongside hurting brothers and sisters and to help them pursue the blessedness that comes from the joyful submission to the will of God. Whatever season, whatever issue. There's no doubt the truism of the Christian pursuit of happiness that our Christian walk is often a rocky road. Things can seem to be going so well. Just a primrose path, everything's beautiful. Your kids are well behaved, your friendships are all are really clicking, and then all of a sudden, heartache rears its ugly head, and we're tempted to lose our focus on God. When in reality, in that beautiful, really fun time, our eyes really weren't focused on Christ in the first place. We were caught up in the, the really fun stuff of what's going on here and not saying, God, thank you so much what you're doing here. This is absolutely amazing. We're tempted to forget the true bless what true blessedness is and the opportunity that sorrows and even sufferings offer for our devotional development. This is why we need one another to come alongside us and with tenderness and, and sympathy to help us bear our burdens and our sorrows. If we do not receive this kind of help, then it is very likely that when we do experience pain and sorrow, we will experience a wobble in our pursuit of happiness. The same is true for those who we refuse to help bear burdens. Again, the Christian life is no easy pilgrimage. Being a child of God does not mean that all will be always easy. Because we live in a sin-saturated, sin-cursed world, we experience the exposure to the same diseases, the same death, the same discouraging setbacks as our unbelieving neighbors and friends. But this is precise, it is precisely because of this that we, when we are God's children, that we can and we must pursue blessed 
happiness that can be ours in the face of such difficulties. When believers are going through a hard time, they indeed need the body to come alongside them and to help them pursue a Christ-centered happiness. We have the mandate to weep with those who weep and to do so in such a way that our fellow believers will keep on pursuing blessedness that is their birthright in Christ. So the question is, an honest one for each and every one of you and us corporately, how are we doing? How are we really doing? For us to meaningfully be the church to one another for the glory of God, we must be committed to dying to selfishness. Period. And we must be committed to reaching out to those who are experiencing the providential sorrows of life. Period. Committed to that. In a very real sense, when one of our members, our brothers and sisters in Christ, is suffering, not only do we all suffer, but we are also all being challenged. All of us are being challenged to grow in Christ and pursue our happiness in Him. All of us. There will be times, and there have been times, when believers really need some profound support from the church. Profound support from the church. And yet often it's at these times of a person's greatest need that we are often tempted to disappear, right? Somebody's life, it hits the fan and it gets really ugly really fast and it gets really messy and you really want to put on, you know, your really perfect gloves and... Uh, kind of put your hazmat suit on and even then you don't want to enter into their situation because you're you're afraid that you know what what am I what do I have to offer here? You know, it, maybe it's not because you don't care, rather it's due to the fact that you might feel absolutely insufficient for the tax. Or you, you might be you might be thinking, you know, what can I what can I do for them? What on earth will I ever say to them? Uh, I have no experience with that. Maybe I'll, I'll only get in the way. Maybe they only just want to be alone. They just want to be by themselves. What if they ask a question that I can't answer? Have you ever felt those things? Watching a, a friend, a brother and sister, their life just falling apart, and you just go, slowly step back. Maybe nobody will notice. Here's a beautiful thing. There's something powerful that is committed, even from the silent presence of a fellow believer in Christ. When a church member is undergoing heartache, the primary concern is not whether we are comfortable, but rather the comforting word. So let's be committed to being a channel of God's blessing, a channel of His happiness. Let's be committed to communicating our concern for the burden with the goal of helping the sorrowful to keep their eyes focused on Christ. Let, let's, let's be alert to the tendency to withdraw from fellowship. Let's, let's lovingly come alongside those persons and give them a, a good word in due season. Let's guard against the temptation of selfishness and self-preservation. But rather, let us lovingly make the pursuit happiness 
of joy our corporate concern. When you get involved in shouldering the burdens of others, you will soon find that they're that not only are they being helped in their pursuit of, of happiness, but so are you. Because you are re-reminded, oh, the joy of the Lord is my Christian character is developed as we reach out to lend a shoulder to the ones who are weary. But let me make another pertinent application. This matter of shouldering the sorrows and the burdens of others includes also those who have deep heartaches and in deep interpersonal struggles, no matter what they are. And these often accompany relational or spiritual or moral failures or struggles. For example, how do we respond to those who have experienced a divorce or, or domestic heartache? Those on the receiving end of this relational breakdown are hurting, broken people, and the church needs to come alongside them and treat them with compassion rather than those who are standing back lobbing our, our, our grenades of holiness into their lives. We would do well to lend a helping hand rather than casting condemning stones. Let us seek to be an understanding and, and sympathetic as, as we commit ourselves to helping those who, in spite of their best efforts, have been on the receiving of relational or spiritual heartache. See, the pursuit of happiness is not reserved merely for those who are experiencing matrimonial bliss and a full harmonious family. The pursuit of happiness is for us all. And when a believer falls morally or doctrinally, we are to come alongside them tenderly and sympathetically. We need to Strengthen the hands that are hanging down from despair, as well as brace the knees for those who are, are weak and just about ready to fall. Those who have fallen and yet are repentant are saying that they want to pursue happiness. That's what repentance is about. Repentance isn't just a, okay, I'm sorry again. Man, I dropped the ball there. True repentance is saying, I am deeply grieved by my brokenness. And I desire no longer find my joy and happiness and satisfaction in these things, but I desire to find my joy and satisfaction and happiness in Christ. So I repent from this and I turn to Christ. So lastly, a commitment to holiness. And I was intentional with doing this last. Because often I think conservative folks like ourselves want to start off with the, the holiness, you know, kind of bring up the bat and start swinging away. Holiness is first, right? In a very real sense, the pursuit of holy happiness and the pursuit of holiness are two sides of the same coin. True happiness can only be found within the confines of obedience to God. This is why the psalmist declares that those who delight in the law of the Lord meditate on it day and night. And these folks are blessed 
or have you. Just read Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Therefore, as we pursue holiness or happiness, we will also be pursuing holiness. They're, they're two sides of the exact same point. And much is often made of the fact that believers are, are not to be pursuing happiness, but rather that happiness is something that we rather stumble upon as we are ultimately pursuing holiness. Stumbling upon Oh, I, I've been really following the Ten Commandments and really following the Bible well. And I just so happen to be happy now. I, I just stumbled upon it. And I believe that is just wrong-headed thinking. Again, God does want us to be happy in Him. And therefore, happiness is not a wrong goal. I think that the reason we're uncomfortable with the teaching, with the teaching that we are to pursue happiness, is because we tend to equate happiness with frivolity. It's frivolous. It's kind of light and airy. And... But the Bible teaches that true happiness, true blessedness, primarily is found in moral rather than emotional terms. We are blessed or happy as we live devoted to obeying God. And we are burdened and unhappy or unblessed when we disobey Him. For example, look at the life of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Did you read his life and his history in the New Testament? You never see him being frivolous. <clears throat> Do you? you don't see him skipping around and just hopping around and being kind of frivolous. In fact, there's no indication anywhere in the Old uh, New Testament of him ever laughing, though I suspect that he did. And yet, as you study the record of his life, it is very, very obvious that this man was pursued, who pursued Christ, was blessed abundantly. He was tremendously blessed. His life was full, and he died a very very happy man. He lived without resentments because he was in love with his Savior and responded to each and every situation as one who was receiving a lot more good than he believed that he deserved. There was no indication that he was bitter. There was no indication that he was unforgiving towards those who mistreated him. In fact, the opposite was absolutely true. He could testify that he was content in all situations. For him, life was a win-win situation. For him, to live was Christ and to die was gain. Paul was a very happy and a very blessed man. But how does one explain all this? After all, the scriptures also reveal that Paul had a very, very hard life. And we just got through the 60-some weeks of walking through the book of Acts. And you saw Paul's, the difficulty of Paul's life. He was rejected by his own nation. He suffered physical persecution. He was burdened with the cares of the failures of other believers. And he spent a good amount of time imprisoned and hindered from fulfilling his ultimate plans. How could a man who experienced such difficulties be so happy? Well, it was simply because he pursued holiness. He pursued by divine aid, a life of overcoming sin. You see, sin causes heartache. Amen? Sin, a little help here. One cannot be truly happy 
enjoying the blessings of communion with God when the guilt of sin is tearing at one's heart. You cannot enjoy fellowship with God when your conscience is absolutely plagued with guilt. Sin separates us from God, and therefore sin must be dealt with in order for us to be happy in Christ. We are to thank God that through justification, we are free from the condemnation of sin and its counterpart guilt. Because of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, we who have been born again are completely justified. We are able to stand as if we have never sinned before an awesome and holy God. We are delivered from the wrath that is to come, and we will never be under God's condemnation. That should make us happy. <laughs> but there is even more. Not only are we freed from the penalty of sin, but we are also freed from the power of sin. Listen to Romans 6, 3-4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might also walk in the newness of life. This is good news. This is the root of our pursuit of happiness. To be able to overcome sin. To overcome that which attempts to defeat us. Makes us blessed and deep. But I'm not saying it's a one-and-done thing, right? There are some besetting sins and issues in our life that is going to be a lifelong journey in our pursuit of happiness and holiness. And it's true that no believer will ever achieve sinless perfection on this side of the grave. Ever, ever, ever. Nevertheless, we are encouraged in Scripture to make progress here and now toward that which will be fully granted to us. Perfection will be fully granted to us on that final day. And so we who make up the membership of Missio Dei Church are under joyful obligation. That sounds like an oxymoron, right? Joyful obligation to pursue our happiness in the pursuit of holiness as we pursue Christ. Holiness is practical. There are duties we must perform and activities to avoid. First, we are to live carefully in this world. This means that we are to be aware, we are to be alert to the evil and to the evil one who, who aims to keep us from living the Christ-saturated, spirit-directed Father-focused, kind of transformed life, which is our birthright in Christ. We must be fully aware of the dangers that we face as we seek to live for Christ. We need to have eyes wide open in our pursuit of holiness. Eyes wide open. But also keeping in mind that there's not a boogeyman underneath every rock. That's the other far extreme, okay? Then after that, you start going over here to so that boogeyman under every rock as you're pursuing your joy in Christ and holiness. That suddenly sucks the joy of your life. 
Secondly, we are to also renounce ungodliness in our worldly passions. This phrase was lifted from Titus 2. Listen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all of our lawlessness, and to purify for himself the people for his own possession, who are zealous, zealous for good works. Paul is exhorting Titus regarding his 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 responsibility as a pastor to instruct the congregation of their privilege and their power to live holy lives. And in a wonderful chapter that clearly exhorts the entire church, if you read Titus chapter 2, it talks to the entire church. Older men and women, younger men and women, are to pursue holiness. Believers are to so live that the gospel looks absolutely good because it does produce the ultimate good because it is the greatest good that produces true happiness. Paul's basis for this exhortation to this young church to pursue holiness is the doctrine of the gospel. He makes it very clear that there is a lifestyle that accords, that matches up with the gospel message. In other words, those who have been converted, who have been saved, are indeed under special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. The gospel is not, not only changes our final destination, which is what I grew up believing. It's kind of fire insurance. The gospel saved me from hell. But it also changes our temporal motivation from sin to holiness. So in our pursuit of holiness, we have a growing loathing of that which doesn't honor God in our lives. A growing loathing of the things in our lives, in our minds, in our thought life, in our practices that don't honor God. And we want to deny it any place in our lives. And therefore, we are careful to avoid actions, associations, and attitudes which dishonor the character of God. We delight to live in such a way that others see that God actually matters in our lives. He has weight. The glory of God. Remember last week, talking about the weightiness of God. You experience the glory of God, the weight of God. You, therefore, are made different, and you make a difference. And we delight to live in such a way that others see that he does matter. So, brothers and sisters, let's encourage one another to live that we are corporately rejecting in resisting that which does not give due preference to Christ. Together, we must be committed to a practical pursuit of holiness. And as we help one another in doing this, then we can indeed have a beautiful and powerful impact on our community. When we live pursuing holiness, 
will indeed be a relevant witness to this world. Our peculiar lives will attract, be attracted to those who have eyes to see. So let's remember that holiness, holiness has always been and will always be beautiful. Let us affirm our commitment to pursuing holiness and to being a people of whom God will say they are zealous for good works. And here's the last thing. We are to pursue holiness not by our own power, but with a resurrection power. You got that from Romans 6, right? We were, we were baptized into death, so we get this identity of dying, but we also have this identity with rising to this newness and this wholeness of life. Therefore, those who are in Christ are, are, are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. And that is amazing good news. So, as I've already mentioned, we who have been born again have been raised to a newness of life. And Paul tells us quite clearly that we are were identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And, and that is, he took away our sins and, and he gave us new life. And he has given us resurrection power. So that besetting sin, that thing that you are struggling with, that, that, that painful sin that you just want to say, get it out, I want you to remember there is resurrection power for those who are in Christ. Therefore, our pursuit of holiness is not characterized or energized by our own flesh and our own self-effort. So I'm going to tell you, I have weeks where I'm absolutely obliterated. I'm absolutely tired. I am dead. Exhausted. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. And in those moments, I can so succumb to the temptations and those, those weak, tasty sins that I so desperately love and enjoyed in my past life. But because of resurrection even in my weakness, there is strength. And it's not on my own strength. It's a strength that comes from outside of me. Much like this saved by grace through faith in Christ. You know, that even came from outside of me. So even this resurrection strength that, that is mine in Christ comes from outside of me. Again, it is great reason for us to be happy. If we know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. And therefore, we are committed, and we need to be committed ourselves to constantly be looking at Him for encouragement and for the energy that we need. Brothers and sisters, I want us to individually agree that by God's grace we will walk together. Together. And I'm not talking about faith together like it's just showing up on Sunday. 
that we will walk together in the newness of life and in helping one another pursue holiness and therefore experiencing the happiness that is ours in Christ. Let's affirm that Thank you. 